uh, it is a joy to be back here with you all. Uh, my, I wish my wife, Megan, could be with me, uh, but we have a lot of affection for this congregation. Uh, we have known the Troglins and the Richardsons and the Wheelers for many, many years. Um, Brad mentioned that I'm a managing, I'm managing editor at the Gospel Coalition. Actually, two of your number have worked for me before as my editorial intern or assistant, uh, Scott Belinsky and Ryan Troglin at different times. So in former days, if you saw a typo on the TGC website, you could have blamed one of them. Now you just have to blame me. Uh, but I'm really grateful for this, this congregation. Some of you will have known also Colton and Lindsay Corder. Colton was recently hired by the International Mission Board, uh, which is headquartered in Richmond. So that's bringing them to Richmond, Virginia, and they're planning to be a part of our church plant. So I bring you greetings today from Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, where uh, we lived and served for 12 years. But one month ago, uh, we moved to Richmond, Virginia, with a view to planting a church. So Trey and I are uh, looking forward to being dialogue partners and friends in ministry from afar as we're really trying to do the same thing. He's, he's trying to establish a, a brand new gospel witness in Bentonville, and I'm trying to do the same thing in Richmond, Virginia. So I do appreciate your prayers for us as, as we seek to move forward and establish River City Baptist Church. And I bring you greetings from uh, some of your friends there. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Now, this is a safe place if you need to use the table of contents. Feel free to turn there first if you need to find Zechariah, or even easier, just find the Gospel of Matthew and flip two books to the left. You'll find Zechariah. Um, and as you're making your way there, I'll, I'll just give a brief overview of the context. So Zechariah is one of 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. They're called minor not because they're unimportant or because they're under the age of 18, but just because compared to the heavy hitters like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and their longer prophecies, those of the minor prophets are, are comparatively shorter. That said, Zechariah is actually the longest of the 12 minor prophets. Well, it's just it's, it's 500 years before Christ, and the uh, Israelites have returned from judgment, from exile in Babylon, and yet the home that awaits them is not the home they remembered. Home is not the same. Much of Jerusalem is in rubble, and the parts that have been rebuilt of the city and of the, the temple are nothing compared to their former glory. The glory that departed in the exile has not yet been restored. And so it's into this context of frustration and disillusionment and fear that God deploys a man named Zechariah to be his mouthpiece, to bring a word in season to his people who have just returned from exile. You see, before the exile, Israel struggled to believe that God would truly judge them. But now, after the exile, they're struggling to believe that God will truly restore. 
Zechariah is given a series of visions to communicate to the people, to give them hope, which brings us to chapter 3. So follow along as I read and as we hear the prophet recount what he's seen. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Zechariah, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule over my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This vision contains three main scenes, and we'll look at each of them in turn. First, the accusation. We'll see that in verses 1 to 3. Second, the restoration, verses 4 to 5. And finally, the restoration. uh, I'm sorry, the expectation in verses 6 to 10. So the accusation, the restoration, and the expectation. First, the accusation. Look again at how Zechariah begins. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is not like a boring movie that takes an hour plus for the plot to thicken. We are immediately in it peering into God's very throne room, which has been transformed into a courtroom because there is a trial underway. Joshua, the high priest, and by the way, this is not Joshua, Moses's successor. We're about 800 years later in the biblical story. This is Joshua, the, the high priest of Israel, after the exile in Babylon. He is standing before God in this vision, but he's not alone. Satan is there as well to accuse him. Perhaps this scene reminds some of you of Job chapter 1, when the angels come to present themselves before the Lord, 
And Satan slithers in as well, ready to negotiate with God and accuse Job and attack him as well. But why here in Zechariah 3 is all this happening? I mean, what is significant? Something must be significant about this moment that the devil, that makes the devil bother to interrupt it. So what is going on? What's so significant about this that makes Satan show up? Well, here's why it's so significant. He is catching God in the act. Satan is catching God in the act of making good on his promises, restoring the exiles back to the land, back to Jerusalem, to rebuilding the temple and restoring the high priest's position as representing the people before God. For seven long decades in Babylon, it looked like, it felt like, None of this would happen, that God had relinquished his promises and had finally abandoned his people. But through the prophet, God is looking his rebellious children in the eye. They are fearful. They are hobbling. They don't know if, like, this is true, that this is going to, that Jerusalem is going to be restored in the sacrificial system, that they're going to be able to know God and enjoy life in the promised land. And God is looking at them in the eye and saying, I'm not done with you yet. I've restored you to the land physically, and I've not given up on you relationally. If you'll just be loyal to me, then your future is no longer bleak, but bright. And Satan This is where he comes into the picture. He hates this changing set of events. And so he comes to register an objection. He's standing beside Joshua as prosecutor. That's what his name, Satan, literally means in Hebrew, prosecutor. And what's the nature of his case? Well, it's not complicated, Joshua doesn't look too good. He is clothed with filthy garments, which means he's a fitting stand-in for the people. This Hebrew word for filthy is not a G or PG word. This is not a tame word in the Bible. The word for filthy is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for only three other things, menstrual blood, human excrement, and vomit. And Joshua is covered in these kinds of garments, this this filthy wardrobe. I mean, you can picture the scene, right? Satan comes into this courtroom and he's like, some high priest you are, Joshua. You are a joke. You had the audacity to come here like this, wearing these filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. And God, if you're really holy as you say you are, you know you need to expel Joshua from your presence. See, we read a scene like this, and we think that Satan is out of place, that he's the one who doesn't fit, who doesn't belong. We, we, we come to a scene like this, and, and we think, okay, I, I got it. Uh, Joshua the high priest, the Lord, that makes sense. You'd you'd expect the high priest to be spending time with the Lord. Satan, what's he doing here? But notice that Satan is not in the shadows. 
He's not on his heels. He's not just kind of lurching out to, to lob an objection. No, he is standing there firm-footed, chest out, because he is confident. His whole case is, Joshua, you are the unwelcome one here. You are the one who doesn't fit. You look pathetic because you and your people and your God are pathetic. Do you not see yourself? Well, how does Joshua reply? He doesn't. He doesn't have a chance. Someone else takes charge of the conversation. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, it's like God is saying, stand down, Satan. Be quiet. You may not speak of my servant that way. I chose Jerusalem, and you're acting like I made a mistake. I snatched him out of the fire of Babylon because my people are precious to me, and you think you can show up uninvited in my courtroom and tell me who's unwelcome. Here in verse 2, notice God's electing love, and his rescuing grace. In the same verse, he chose Jerusalem. He chose the Israelites, not the reverse. He set his affection on them, not because they were so good, but because he was so good. And that's a love that is secure because you can't lose what you never earned. It's been said, a theologian named Gerhardus Voss points out that the, the, the greatest proof that God will never stop loving us lies in the fact that he never began. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God doesn't love you? He's never started? No. Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So what Voss is saying is that God will never stop loving you because he's actually always been loving you. His love was never born, so it will never die. It's beginningless, and therefore you can be assured it will be endless. And those on whom God sets his eternal, everlasting, electing love become the recipients of his rescuing grace. In 1709, a house in England caught on fire and there were six children, all of whom were able to escape from the flames, or at least they thought so until they realized that the youngest child, John, was still stuck in the house. And so amid all the chaos and the confusion, a nearby farmer spotted little John up in an upstairs window. And neighbors rushed to the scene, and some men were able to kind of hoist themselves one on top of the other in order to grab little John and bring him down to safety amid those dancing flames. And later in life, after his conversion, John Wesley loved to describe his life with the words of Zechariah 3, 2, a burning stick plucked from the fire. And if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning, that is what you are too. 
chosen and snatched. Snatched from the eternal fire of God's justice that you deserved because of your sin, your rebellion against him, but that he has pulled you out of in love. Now, don't lose sight of the context, the scene, okay? Elect, we're talking about electing love, rescuing grace, but these are not random doctrines. These are not just floating abstractions because, well, it's the Bible, God, Zechariah might as well talk about things like this. No, why do these two particular truths, electing love and rescuing grace, why do they show up in Zechariah 3? Well, it's because they are responses to satanic attack. God is spotlighting what he does best because Satan is busy doing what he does best, accusing, not just 2,500 years ago with Joshua, but this morning with you. There are hearts and there are consciences right now in this room where there can be heard the whispers of accusation. Brothers and sisters, here's the the thing that you've got to understand about Satan's accusations. About you. They are rarely wrong. He is rarely inaccurate in the case he brings against you. See, he, like I was saying earlier, he's confident. He's not lurching in the shadows. Satan walks into the courtroom prepared. He comes into your conscience prepared. And frankly, his case is strong because you are filthy You are guilty before a righteous God. You are a moral failure, a hypocrite, a fraud, a joke. You are defiled from head to toe, from the inside out. And the idea of you, you standing before a holy God, and not just standing, much less worshiping in the presence of a holy God, to Satan, that's not just hilarious. That is downright obscene because he looks at you and me in our sin, and he looks at God and he says, God, you haven't just lowered your standard here. You have violated your standard. You are not who you say you are. If you can let this kind of repulsive person stand in your presence. See, I used to think that the nature of Christ's advocacy for me, right? Standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding on my behalf, basically consisted of him reconvincing God the Father over and over to give me another chance. Yes, I know Matt blew it. Uh, I know I'm here again, but give, give him another chance. Well, you can imagine that my sense of security was only as strong as my feeling that that arrangement could hold. At what point was God the Father going to say, enough? I've heard enough about this fellow Matt. No more chances for him. But the foundation of my security and the foundation of your security, if you're in Christ, is not that flimsy. It's not hanging on the spider thread 
of that arrangement. It's not hanging on the spider thread of God being lenient. It's not even hanging on God being merciful. It's hanging, as it were, on the cross. He, Jesus, paid it all. And therefore, you can have confidence that when you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and merciful. No, he is merciful, but that's not what the verse says. You are so secure in Christ that God, when you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to purify you from all unrighteousness, which means that for him not to forgive a repenting sinner would be wrong and unjust in light of what Christ has done. That is how secure you are. So yes, Satan brings true accusations against you. But Christian, you you need to know that when God plucked you from the fire, he did so with a clear view of your sin, not just your past sin, but also your future sin, and he still wanted to do it anyway. He knew you had sinned against him, that you would continue to sin against him, but he wanted you anyway, and he has never regretted his decision. But the other guy in the courtroom has the gift of discouragement, and he will whisper accusation all day long, if he must, to keep you feeling down about your sin. But Christian, listen to me. God did not give you a new heart for it to be perpetually torn up in pieces with discouragement. Instead of listening to the accuser, we have the opportunity afresh this morning to set our eyes on the love, the electing love of God placed on us from before the foundation of the world. And if we want to see where that love shines brightest, we can look to a little hill outside of Jerusalem. Spend some time this week pressing your heart into words like these. When Satan tempts me to despair, which he will, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. But God doesn't stop with just silencing the accusations. He also reclothes the accused. Number two, the restoration. Look at verse four. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua, he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This scene is so exciting that even Zechariah chimes in. That's him speaking in the first person in verse five. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. In other words, hey, don't don't stop with the priestly robes. Let's give him the priestly mantle as well. Let's make sure he's fully decked out uh, from head to foot. So they put a clean turban on Joshua's head and clothed him with garments. Again, Joshua's repulsive garments are a physical picture of Israel's spiritual condition. But notice, and this is, this is so important not, not to miss, how God responds to Joshua's defilement. 
It's the same way he responded to the accusations back in verse 2. God responds to Joshua's filthiness and defilement in the same way he responded to the accusations. Remember there, God did not respond to Satan's accusations by downplaying Joshua's sin, but rather by pointing to his own grace. Remember that? I selected and snatched these people out of the fire. How dare you accuse them? Likewise here, God is not saying, I can see there's been a misunderstanding, uh, but it's not as bad as it looks. He's not as bad as he looks. No, God doesn't for a second deny or minimize the filth. He just removes it. And he replaces that dirty laundry with radiant robes. And the most important word I just said was he. He does this. He's the actor. It's not, and this is the way so many of us think of religion. If you're visiting from uh, uh, University of Arkansas uh, or, or some, some place where you're not used to uh, hearing about these things, if you're not a believer, if you're not used to going to church, you may think that the natural response would be for God, maybe even in mercy, to say, I'll give you another chance. I'll give you a blank slate. Joshua, I'll wait here, go out, and try to get a better outfit because you look terrible. But that's not what God says. He says, I have taken your iniquity away. I will clothe you with pure garments. All you need to do is stand there and receive the gift. Of course, in, in the immediate context, as I've, as I've said, the new clothes symbolize the priesthood regaining its lost dignity. But that's not all. This, this is an enacted parable of our own salvation. If you're a believer, you should see yourself in Zechariah chapter 3. See our justification, which means our change of status before God, whereby we who believe in Jesus are pronounced righteous in the right before him. It's even a picture of, here's another big word, imputation. God imputing or transferring or crediting our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. So I don't know what you've heard about Christianity or what you think the good news of the gospel is, but according to the Bible, it is that on the cross, God treated you, if you're trusting in Christ, he treated you as if you had lived Christ's perfect life. On the cross, I'm sorry, God treated Christ as if he had lived your filthy life so that he could treat you as if you had lived Christ's perfect life. Some theologians have referred to that as the sweet exchange where Jesus takes what we deserve and we get what he deserved. And we see a picture of that here in this passage. Now, perhaps some of you, I am certain, in fact, that some of you feel too filthy, too messed up, too far gone for God to treat you like this. Maybe you believe he loves you in abstraction, but you wonder if he kind of regrets the decision to pick you for his team. Well, Joshua was in the same boat. 
He wore repugnant clothes, and yet the Lord gave him new ones. And all the Christians who were here in this room wore filthy clothes before a holy God, and yet the Lord still saved them. Friend, you have never done anything. You've never committed any sin that can possibly vacate Christ's offer for new and clean clothes. If you would only come to him in faith, he will gladly give them to you today. Here's how one Puritan summarized this dramatic scene. Quote, Christ loathed, that is, he hated the filthiness of Joshua's garments. Christ loathed the filthiness of Joshua's garments. Yet, he did not put him away, but put them away. Thus, God, by his grace, does with those whom he chooses. He parts them and their sins and so prevents their sins parting them and their God. Well, the accuser has been silenced. Joshua has been reclothed, but God is not done. Finally, the expectation. The expectation. In verse 6, notice that the angel of the Lord, it says, he solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule over my house. Okay, this is a record scratch moment for good evangelicals like us because we've been meditating on gospel grace and the mercy of God and all of a sudden in the middle of this otherwise glorious passage, we have a conditional statement. If you walk in my ways, Joshua, then you will rule over my house. Is this legalism making a little cameo appearance into our great little passage? No. First of all, notice the way that the statement is framed in verse 6. It's not, and the angel of the Lord scolded Joshua. It's not even that he warned Joshua. What's the verb? He assured Joshua. See, on the other side of accusation, this is a scene of assurance. And don't miss the order of events here. Joshua is reclothed and cleansed, verses 4 to 5, before he is commanded, verses 6 and 7. Again, this is the good news of Christianity, which is unique to Christianity. You don't have to perform for God in order to be accepted by God. He accepts you and cleanses you because of Christ's performance, and then you are liberated to live in a way that brings pleasure to the one who chose you and snatched you in love. Here's another thing. What office does Joshua hold in Israel? I've said it a number of times. What office does Joshua hold in Israel? What position? Priest. Well, what here in verse 7 does God promise Joshua if he obeys? That he will rule. Speaking of record scratch moments, for the original hearers, the Old Testament, priests served, but only kings ruled. And the camera lens here takes on even clearer focus in chapter 6. Go ahead and look there. Zechariah 6, verse 11. Zechariah 6, 11. Take from them, that is the returning filthy exiles, take from them silver and gold 
and make a crown, a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Friends, in Zechariah 3 and 6, we are seeing one of the few flickers of what the old of what will light up the pages of the New Testament, the reunion between the priesthood and the kingship in one man. But this priest king is not the only flicker of the future. Look back in chapter 3 at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. My servant, the branch. Both are official titles in your Old Testament that are freighted with meaning. In Isaiah, my servant had become God's title for the Messiah who would suffer and die in the place of his people. And the branch is God's title for the Messiah who would shoot up from the line of Jesse and rise to rule the world. And here we have these joined together, referring to the same person. Remember verse 2? Don't miss this little contrast as well. Verse 2, how was Joshua described? How are we described? Burning twig, just a stick. Jesus is the branch sprouting with life from the ground. The historical events of Joshua's day are, according to verse 8, a sign of for a greater day of fulfillment. God here is recertifying his promises and saying, I'm still planning on it. I'm still planning to bring a greater priest, a true and better Joshua who will come as a suffering servant and will rise to rule the world. And what is the Lord's promise here that is etched in stone? The end of verse 9. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. You see what's going on? The coming of this servant, this branch, will coincide with the ejection of sin. And 500 years later, that day came. When Jesus hung on the cross, the earth shook, the sun was blotted out, the graves were open, and the covering of sin was removed from all those who bore its guilt. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That is why the dying words of Jesus Christ were not, it is almost finished. As if it's going to be up to you to complete the task and keep God happy. No, as we've been marveling at in our study, uh, as we've marveled at uh, in our study of this passage, this is the sacrifice that Israel has needed, that we needed. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath so that there would not be a drop left for you if you're trusting in Christ. And this sudden removal of sin, this sudden removal of sin, verse 9 has spillover effects for the life of God's people. Verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. 
Those of you who have seen the play Hamilton may uh, have a little tune in your head right now because in that play, George Washington sings these very words because it's a, it's a phrase that Washington would often say, people living under their own vine and fig tree, to refer to the security of life in America that is free from military oppression. And yet, of course, this language, it's not original to Washington. It's not about America. He was drawing it from places like First Kings and Micah and here in Zechariah chapter 3. It's, it's an image that shows up throughout the Old Testament to describe the security and the blessedness of life under the king's reign. But, but this is not just a, a feel-good phrase, you know, fit for a, uh, a musical. There's an action involved. Look again, verse 10. Every one of you will invite his neighbor into this kingdom life, essentially, is what Zechariah is saying. No, we, we are not ancient Israel, we, University Baptist Church. You are not rebuilding a temple in Jerusalem, but we, you, are the church the new temple of Christ, and we're called to invite others into the peace of forgiven sin and the security of the king's reign. So we shouldn't close our Bibles and move on to the Lord's Supper, the final song, without asking ourselves the question, who are we inviting? Who are we inviting into this kingdom life? this kingdom reign. I recently had an extended family member who suddenly died at the age of 51. We, we just never know when the clock will run out. You never know when that coworker, that neighbor, that family member will breathe their last. But you can relax. I, I don't say this to, to guilt trip you. I say this actually to encourage you because it is not your job to save them. That's not the verb here. It's just your job to invite them. Well, even though Zechariah 3 is still five centuries away from Christ's arrival in Bethlehem, this, I hope you've seen and felt, is a sparkling diamond of gospel grace. We can marvel at this gospel diamond kind of from many angles. We already have. Have I not chosen Jerusalem? That's God's electing love. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? That's God's rescuing grace. Remove his filthy garments. I'll clothe you with pure ones. That's God covering us in the radiant righteousness of his son. We have a priest king. We have a suffering servant. We have a branch. We get to overhear the words 500 years before Jesus, I will remove sin in a single day, which is exactly what would occur on Good Friday. It's not a long chapter. It's not a long chapter, and yet it can feel overwhelming to ponder. And trust me, to preach, because it is just so uh, sprawling. In fact, though, there is a practical laser-like focus. There is a practical laser-like focus. All of these angles on the diamond in Zechariah 3 converge in service to you, believer, as you hear those whispers of accusation. Above all, what Zechariah 3 is pressing on us is that this electing, 
rescuing, righteousness-granting, sin-removing king is your defense attorney. And he is undefeated in court. His case for you is infallible. That's why the Apostle John could write two verses after what I quoted earlier. If, we're, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, remember, to forgive us our sins. Two verses later, I'm writing these things to you, little children, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, i.e. all of us, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why Paul can reflect on your opponents, the prosecution team in your life. Demonic, human, and say, Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, he, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is not an application preachers often make. It's not an application I often make. But I think one of the applications for us is that we are free in light of a passage like this to smile and to laugh and to enjoy life as Christians. We don't have to be dour and discouraged all the time looking into the morass of our heart and frustrated that we haven't made more progress in the faith. There is a time for that in certain contexts, but we should come away from a passage like this with a smile on our face because we are the recipients of such amazing love. Well, in conclusion, I I mentioned John Wesley earlier, but at the time when he was converted, there was another John in England who was decidedly not converted. This John was busy trafficking human bodies in the transatlantic slave trade. But God snatched John Newton out of the fire too. And you can imagine that given that wicked past as a slave trader, that Satan did not leave a converted John Newton alone. That he whispered often those words of accusation. And so Newton would do something which is a practice I commend to you. He would fight back, and he would fight back by putting pen to paper and writing prayers to the one who will crush the serpent's head. He would write prayers like this, bow down beneath a load of sin, by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place, that sheltered by thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. Or as another old hymnist put it even more simply, well may the accuser roar. It's a new week. This is going to happen to you today, tomorrow. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Christian, whether it was something you did last night or 40 years ago, the sins that you cannot forget, God does not remember. That's how defended and covered and secure you are. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we praise you for the promise of Revelation 3, 5, that the one who trusts in you and who conquers will be clothed with white garments and you will never blot his name from the book of life. We praise you that you're our defense attorney and that your case for us is airtight, not because we are easy to defend, but because you have already paid for the crimes. Help us this week to live, to laugh, to rejoice as if this is true, because it is. In Jesus' name, amen.